Hello, and welcome to the William & Mary Environmental Law and Policy Review's 2021 Symposium Podcast, Sustainability in the City. In this episode, you'll hear a recording of our Digital Age panel in which our distinguished panelists discuss the possibilities and limitations of data collection technology for promoting sustainability in municipal affairs. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome to the digital age portion of our symposium. My name is Summon Park and I will be serving as your moderator for this panel. This afternoon, we'll be joined by professionals from a very broad range of perspectives. We have Dr. Almalog, who will be joining us shortly after his class, Assistant Professor of Computer Science at Christopher Newport University. We have Dr. Davis here with us today, the Chief Information Officer for the City of Award-Winning Digital City, Hampton, Virginia. We also have Professor Vermes, Dean of Programs at the University of Montreal Faculty of Law, specializing in artificial intelligence and information security. And we have Professor Giuffrida, who we just heard from, Professor of Law at William & Mary School, Law School, specializing in artificial intelligence and artificial intelligence and emergent technologies. Thank you all for your time here today. So let's get started with our first question. As we enter the digital age, do any barriers exist, in your opinion, that bar this transition into a smart city? And if so, do they present themselves uniformly or is there a pattern to which types of cities find it harder or easier to adopt these technologies? And um, let's start with Professor Chufrida. Hi, first of all, thank you very much for having me yet again after the recorded presentation. Um, these are, uh, this is a very, very um, important and, and difficult questions to answer sort of from an empirical perspective because I don't have that kind of data. But looking at what um, uh, sort of the research that in fact Professor Vermeis and I have been doing over the last, um, over the last few years, also along with Professor Letter, um, which is important to mention. Um, it, the kinds of barriers that exist are sort of two types. There's the sort of the cost barrier, um, as I mentioned very briefly in, in the presentation, um, to have a city or an urban space get the sort of the, the label of smart requires a very large upfront investment in the relevant infrastructure. Now, in, the infrastructure is not all of it. So it's quite different from, for instance, transport infrastructure. So if you wanted to create a railroad, that is the infrastructure that you're going to use and sort of to some extent once that is in place, mountains is a cost, but your piece of infrastructure is there. For smart cities infrastructure, that, that's just the starting point because that technology with its advancement will require further investments in maintaining the infrastructure as up-to-date as possible uh, for future users. So costs are certainly one of the biggest barriers um, uh, that, uh, um, that sort of have emerged. And maybe in, in, a, in a second, um, uh, in, in so second place, the second category perhaps of, uh, of barriers is the degree of comfort with this kind of technology. Uh, having seen what has happened with um, the example of Toronto that I talked briefly in my presentation and then I talked in the paper, there, there's a, a growing degree of lack of comfort with this sort of technologies. And this means that the, the elected officials that we as the citizens, as the data points, a point may pass on this, this lack of comfort with them and inform their decision-making. 
So I see, I'm sure that there's a number of other, um, other barriers, but these are the two principal ones that I think have to be thought through and analyzed as part of the democratic discourse to decide what kind of smart city we want and how we want to build it. Thank you. I think we can probably spend the whole uh, rest of the seminar on, on this uh, single question, because obviously there are a lot of elements there to unwrap. Uh, the first one, and, and Professor Geofrida mentioned this in her presentation, uh, is to say, well, if you, you're talking about transitioning into a smart city, you have to establish what a smart city is, right? And as Professor Geofrida uh, mentioned, there are about as many definitions uh, out there uh, as there are people who are studying or, or uh, discussing smart cities. Uh, uh, just to give you an example, the smartest city, depending on what you're looking at, it can be Barcelona, which is the city that has the most sensors. Uh, it can be London, which uh, uh, Professor Giafrida referenced in her presentation, because London has the most uh, uh, cameras, uh, the biggest camera network uh, in uh, the Western world. Um, we could say New York because it's the city that has the most Wi-Fi or the, the widest Wi-Fi penetration. Um, but then you can go to quote unquote completely smart cities or what was projected as pretty uh, as official smart cities and i'm thinking here of songdo in south korea which actually wound up to be quite a failure as a smart city it was this supposed to be the city of the future and it didn't pan out as it was supposed to uh mazdar in the united uh, arab emirates uh, which was more or less in this on the same line uh neom in uh, saudi arabia uh, so on and so forth and i actually was last week uh, uh, evaluating a PhD thesis from a student which was actually on smart cities. And he is from Rio de Janeiro and he showed us uh, the uh, center that they put in place back in uh, 2014 for the World Cup. Uh, and it basically looks like if you've ever uh, looked at a, a NASA uh, launch site, uh, you know, to have all of these people and this giant screen on the wall, that is actually smaller than uh, uh, NASA would actually be jealous of what Rio, Rio has to surveil what's going on in the city. So depending on how you phrase it, uh, your, your answer to this question will be different. Um, but let's just keep it very simple. And we're talking about a city that is uh, more connected and where uh, uh, technology is used to make things more fluid. And we're talking about uh, transport and so on. Um, but then your barriers, again, will be the same barriers to innovation in a city as anywhere else. Uh, a, the existing infrastructure, as Professor Geofrida mentioned. Uh, back in 97, I lived in uh, the Netherlands. And I found it fascinating to see that depending on which city you were in, and the Netherlands, for those of you who haven't gone, is a very small country. You can cross the whole country within a few hours. Um, but within the, uh, one, from one city to the next, you'll have a very uh, sophisticated uh, from a technological standpoint city and right next to it you'll have a city like Amsterdam which is still very classic and I remember asking back in the day why is it that the the, the country is so uh, 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 is absolutely not uniform in its presentation and the answer for that was very simple World War II the cities that were bombed the most are the ones that are the most technologically advanced today because they did not have to build around existing infrastructure, around uh, uh, buildings that were heritage buildings and so on. And so obviously you have the existing infrastructure to, uh, 
to take into account. And that's one of the reasons Professor Giofrida mentioned in her previous presentation that for smaller cities, it's sometimes easier because you have less infrastructure in place. And then obviously you have barriers that are financial, like for any other project, and you have uh, the will of whoever is there. And you also have uh, uh, changing um, administrations. Montreal, a few years back, was set to be the smartest city in Canada. And then we elected a new mayor who wanted to take the city in a different direction. And then we fell uh, uh, into another category. So all that to say that uh, uh, the barriers are really the same as for any innovation. Are people willing to do it? Do we have the money? And is what's already in place something that we can work with to move towards a smart city or not? I think as, as was mentioned already, uh, uh, you know, the cost for um, moving to a digital uh, aspect or a digital city is, is there. Um, sometimes the costs are prohibitive, as was stated. But one thing I also want to, to point out, too, is that, you know, depending on the characteristics of the city, there may be resistance to change because a lot of times, you know, when you, you have processes, people are used to those um, and you bring in something new, um, you know, you, you might hear, well, this is all, this is the way it's always been done. But, um, you, you know, when you bring something new in, sometimes they feel that it's going to take their job away. But uh, it, you have to also share no, it's not going to take your job away. It's going to enhance what you do. And then there are those who, in addition to resisting change, sometimes there are many silos that you have in, in your area, in your cities. You know, there's not a, a lot of communication. So you, you have to, you know, break that and get individuals or different departments to talk together and then, you know, kind of work towards what you can do to implement your, your digital city. But that's a, those are barriers that I see. And I'm not going to say that's here in, in Hampton, but, you know, I've seen in other places. Um, people are resistant to change and, and they don't communicate. So those, those are too, too common. Um, and again, you, you know, you have legacy systems. No one wants to change. Uh, so you have to take a look at that and, and figure out the best way to move forward. And sometimes, you know, communication is, is, is key, but when you, when you have individuals that are resistant to communicating, that, that can be a downfall. And, and another thing too is, is the business ready for change? Is the business ready to move forward with that? Because sometimes if it doesn't come from the top, it's not gonna be successful. So you have to have buy-in to, to move forward. And these are all barriers that uh, allow us to move forward with, with progressing toward a digital environment. I agree with all these barriers of what you mentioned. I would like to emphasize in the adoption and the acceptance of the public. I think one of the issues is that uh, when we talk about smart cities, uh, 
we have to always think about that. Uh, we need to find the benefits for everybody that live in the city. And these are different generations, different ways of thinking. Everybody has different way of acceptance. Like it's the way that uh, younger generation looks at the technology is completely different than the senior, genera- uh, the senior citizens, for example. The way of acceptance uh, is completely op- like probably opposite from each other. Uh, I think it's 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 this is one of the biggest challenge. Uh, the other issue is that uh, most of the time, these uh, when it comes to financial or to finance these uh, type of uh, initiatives and technologies in the smart cities, uh, it gets voted by one type of people who probably has the same type of interest when it comes to new technologies. Uh, the new generations or teenagers, for example, they do not have any involvement in deciding how much money they need to spend uh, in, for example, smart parking or in, in a smart transportation system. So I think this is kind of like a, um, there's inequality in terms of uh, serving the all type of citizens when it comes to uh, the finance uh, part of it. Mm-hmm. So I think all of our panelists have alluded to some specific technologies, but could you speak to some specific uh, digital assets that are available now and the potential benefits that they offer that are drawing these cities to start adopting them? And can we start with Professor Almalog, please? Sure. Uh, when it comes to the digital assets for that is owned by the city, it's actually uh, more than what we uh, think it is. Uh, it's, it comes to the, the to digital uh, libraries that we have at the library, local libraries. It comes to all the documents and the, the personal information that we have uh, for the citizen in the city. It comes to also all the data that we collect from the sensors that we have uh, implemented uh, in the roads or everywhere. Uh, surveillance cameras that we keep track of. Right now with the police officers, they, they, they have uh, cameras, they record. That's also top of the contents. Uh, all the websites that are owned and run by the city, these are also uh, assets for the, for this, the, for the cities. Uh, the issue, I, the, when I look at the assets that we have, I don't think we have a problem with collecting data in particular. I think we have tons of data. The only issue is like how we utilize the data that we have. And that is the biggest problem. Uh, Sensor they collect uh, now with the, most of the cities and uh, uh, in Virginia in particular, they have um, the interactive road signs that display the messages about the speed limit, uh, the changes. And these most of these uh, signs, they actually have sensors and they collect data about the traffic. But do the city utilize this data? Probably the cities do not because it's owned or the data is stored by the company who installed it. So the issue is not with the, I think at, the, at, the, at this moment right now, we have tons of data and also from the citizen who carries mobile devices. There's tons of data produced by that. The only issue I believe, or the, the challenge is how do we utilize this data that we have and make it meaningful? Uh, I can remember like a story I was uh, reading uh, not too long ago, the uh, uh, company uh, CEOs and, uh, they're complaining about uh, their IT staff by saying that you asked us to invest a lot in technologies and hardware, and we did because of all the data, but we're not seeing the return of the investment. 
the issue is not because they're not getting data. The issue is that they're not analyzing the data. Mm-hmm. This is the biggest thing. I think cities, they need to think about uh, getting some professional people who is mainly data analysts that can dig into all this data they have recorded and utilize it and probably profit from that. I'm not saying profit by selling some people information, but profit in terms of the marketing, probably in terms of enhancing the services they provide to the citizen. So uh, I think that's the, what, what the cities uh, or smart cities needs to focus on. Data is not like the assets that we have. It's, it's just, it, it's, it's sometimes like too big and the way we have it, it's not utilized at all. Thank you. Uh, Professor, uh, Dr. Davis, could you answer for us? Uh, I, I agree that uh, we already have a lot of data uh, available to us. It, it's, it's how we manage it and, and how we utilize it uh, to, to make better decisions. Uh, one, one thing that we have started uh, conversations with are um, adding sensors, you know, to since we control the traffic, adding sensors to our traffic lights and things like that. And also uh, we have issues with stormwater rise and, and flooding. So we're, we're, we're adding sensors that will help us to understand, you know, wh- when the water's rising, where it's rising, so we can reroute uh, traffic, we can reroute, um, you know, citizens to a different way to minimize their, their hazards. And in, in the traffic sense, we're, we're looking at how to read the data to um, help us with traffic. There's a lot of traffic here in Virginia. So we're trying to look at how we can reroute traffic as if there's an accident, how do we get citizens you know, to continue moving? How do we get traffic moving? So we're, we're looking at those, those ways to do it. Um, there, there's a lot of ways that we, we try to do things. Uh, and, I, and I think the, you know, using sensors, the internet of things with everything being connected, you know, it gives us a wealth of information of, of making better decisions. So for us, collecting the data, we have a lot of data, but for us is how we use it. How can we make things better for the citizens of Hampton? How can we make things uh, hazardless um, so they can be safe and, and do what they need to do as they go about their daily lives? So for us, it's like traffic and our stormwater uh, sensors that help us to maintain uh, a sense of safety so we can manipulate and, and maneuver our citizens to, to better ways of doing things. And another thing we, we looked at is we have a lot of um, trash collection activity. One thing with that, we're looking at utilizing sensors for the different waste containers. Uh, we don't wanna waste opportunity just by sending a truck out on a schedule. So if, if we know when trash you know, containers are full, we, we empty them. Otherwise, we, we do something different. So, you know, those are the kind of things that fortunately we have started to in, engage in and invest in. And, you know, we have consensus and, and um, buy into all of these different types of technologies 
because for us, it's about making the citizens' lives better. I, I think we uh, we all agree, and, and I can only add to what uh, uh, the two gentlemen uh, just uh, mentioned, uh, that data is really at the, the core of it. And one issue, and, and I think uh, Dr. Almalag uh, put his finger on it, one issue is that unfortunately that data is not all in the same hands. I say, unfortunately, for the purposes, obviously, of this discussion, uh, it's probably very fortunate for other reasons, uh, mostly for privacy concerns. But when you're talking about a city like Williamsburg, well, obviously, there's some data that's collected by municipal authorities, some by private uh, uh, bodies uh, within the city, right? All the, the, the shops might have data that might be very useful. And then you have, obviously, state authorities that have access to some data. You have the, the military that uh, has access to some data that might be useful. And then you obviously have the federal uh, agencies that have some data. So it's pooling all of this information together. And then the other element in the equation is the algorithms, right? Mm -hmm. You have to develop these algorithms to analyze the data, to treat the data, and to be actually to uh, give some information drawn from that data that can actually be useful to all parties uh, to put in place trash collection, to put in place uh, traffic uh, um, controls, uh, to put in place any type of uh, device or service that will make living in that in, in the city more enjoyable or, or at least uh, less of a hassle for individuals. I think really the answer has already been uh, uh, given quite fully by, by the speakers. And if I might take um, uh, a, a word of caution in this context, so the question is a positive question. So you're asking us what the potential benefits are. And these are some or very many other kinds of benefits that one can think about in, in terms of um, uh, this kind of technology. And I go back to something that I say in the presentation. This is really that um, sort of normative smart police, that there's this good objective, the smart cities here to try to improve the quality of life of, of its citizens. The aspect that perhaps Professor Mason and I are a little bit more concerned about, as I'm sure are, are also other people, is what the, the fact that we're assuming that both the technology and the data is neutral. The reality is that it isn't. It gets the imprinting of the maker. So when we say about data needing to be interpreted, Let's be conscious of the fact that biases, it, unfortunately, the bias appear is, a, is a word that carries a lot of negative meaning. There's very bad bias, but there's simply the cognitive bias, how I look at the world through my, through my lenses, right? So I, I don't mean no harm to anybody, but I have my set of assumptions, my set of cognitive abilities that inspire me to perhaps look at the data in one way, which is going to be very different from what um, Dr. Davis and his team do. So as we think about how do we interpret this data and how do we use the data for that normative objective, we also have to build in that process some quality controls or safety valves so that no one particular bias um, becomes dominating because people's lives are here at, you know, at stake. And so perhaps this is my word of caution of as we think about the benefits, we also need to buy about the governance of these benefits so that we are as close as possible to achieving them, you know, still human beings who will make mistakes on, on the way. Thank you. And that leads in perfectly to our next question. So 
um, as much uh, a lot of data is being collected in the efforts from cities to uh, become smarter, um, obviously there is a security concern as I think um, both uh, Professor uh, Vernez and um, Doctors Davis and Amalog both um, mentioned. So, you know, uh, doc, uh, Professor Jufrida, I think you touched on this, but how can cities ensure that the data collected by both public and private entities is properly managed? And who makes these decisions normally? And how do you think um, these decisions can be improved? And um, yeah, can we uh, start with Professor Jufrida since we um, left off with you? Uh, sure. Um... If, if I had the answer to this, I think it would be a Nobel Prize winner. So I'm just going to give <laughs> just just a try. Um, it, it, the, the challenges of um, uh, data collection and data analysis and cybersecurity, and Professor Vermees is by far more eloquent than me in, in this space, are enormous. Uh, but you asked the right question. First, whose responsibility it is and who makes these decisions? And this is where some of the points I was making in the recorded presentation about the public-private partnerships pose very big challenges. Uh, Dr. Almalag has mentioned the fact that, that you may have a smart sign, street sign, that just tells you to slow down or put your phone down. You know, it, it gives you a good message. And, and at the same time, it's collecting data about perhaps even taking a snapshot of my face for all I know. Um, this data is actually, as Dr. Omar said, is owned by the corporation that has put together and, and, and has created this, this particular device. What really brought down uh, um, the, uh, the sidewalk um, uh, enterprise was the fact that no agreement could be reached about how do you handle this treasure trove of, of data. People who would have been living in this completely smart uh, quarter of a city wasn't obviously an entire an entire city were very uncomfortable about their data, their every move being scrutinized. So suggestions about anonymization have been put forward, but people will tell you that in the context of big data, anonymization is a very it, it's sort of a fictitious concept that gives you some comfort in the short run, but it doesn't mean an awful lot in the long run. So these decisions, I don't know who should make them. Perhaps if I put my governance hat on, my legal hat on, I say that these are decisions that our appointed politicians should make in concert with experts who can explain to them, because nobody's born with this kind of technical knowledge. We need computer scientists, we need data analysts, we need technology specialists to tell our elected politicians, this is how it works, these are where the dangers are. But of course, you've got the commercial interests that also come into play. So my answer is a democratic answer. It needs to be part of the democratic process. How, how if I had to put it in place, how would I do so? I don't know, I would fail that exam question. So I'll pass it on perhaps to the Professor Vermees who may do a better job. <laughs> Professor Vermees, can you pick up? Um, I, I, I can, it's, I was looking at the order and I didn't wanna uh, cut to uh, Dr. Davis who was next on the list, so I do apologize. Um, uh, yeah, it, it is a difficult question. It's also a very cultural-based uh, question. And what I mean by that is depending where you are in the world, obviously, uh, it, will uh, have a, a great impact on who you think uh, should deal with this. Um, for example, Americans are much more uh, uh, weary of their government uh, than Canadians. 
Um, and so if you ask me as a Canadian, uh, I'm going to say government for sure and not enterprise because we're actually much more scared of private enterprise than we are of government. Uh, and I can't say that we're right or you're, you are or who's right or wrong. It's just, again, a cultural uh, 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 decision. I teach a lot of, uh, we have a lot of uh, Chinese students at my university, and I'm always fascinated when we're discussing privacy issues. Uh, just for example, uh, the, um, the COVID uh, uh, tools, detection tools that a lot of cities and a lot of uh, states and countries have put in place, where you basically have an app on your phone, and whenever you come in contact with somebody that has had COVID, uh, it's registered, and then you might get a message saying, well, on this day, you were this close to somebody you had COVID, so you might want to go get tested. Um, in Canada, that bombed completely because it was managed by a private corporation. Um, in China and, and in, in the US, I, depending on, on where uh, it's being uh, held, in some places, people just don't want to use it. And I know in Europe, where it's actually uh, governments that are putting it in place, uh, people that distrust the government don't want to use it. In China, they're just fine with it. Uh, because culturally it's not as uh, imperative or there's not that that fear of what that technology is going to do. So there is that, uh, that co cultural element to it. So as a Canadian, I would tell you uh, who should make these decisions normally. I I'd go with Professor Geofrida and said it should be our elected officials. Problem is our elected officials don't necessarily understand the technology all that well because most politicians are not computer scientists. And so they're going to rely on computer scientists uh, who might have uh, 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 other ideas and other ideals and not because they're evil uh, conglomerates who want to rule the world, but simply because they know a different reality. Uh, there are a lot of things that governments want to do that is, are just not practical or pragmatic or just can't be done from a technological standpoint. So uh, there is... A lot. Uh, the, so, who should normally make the decision will vary uh, depending on all of these elements. But to get back to the first part of your question, and I really like the way you phrased it because you said, "How can cities ensure that data collected by public and private entities is properly managed, not how to ensure that it is secure?" Because you can't ensure that the data is going to be secure. You can put in place as many security measures as you want, but the, the idea of perfect security is something that is basically a, a, a myth. You just cannot have perfect security because you're always going to find someday some sort of a flaw. So you have to put as many, uh, as many safeguards in place that you can, from, but at the same time where things stay practical. When you're talking about ensuring security, what you, you're actually talking about is ensuring three things. Data availability, data confidentiality, and data integrity. So if you put measures in place that are too sophisticated, then you're not allowing for data availability, which means that your data becomes useless for cities, for officials who want to exploit it to offer services in good faith. So you have to hit an equilibrium between availability, integrity, and confidentiality, and not just focus on confidentiality, which is extremely important from a privacy perspective, but it's not the only thing that uh, you need to worry about. And finding that equilibrium, finding that place where your data is sufficiently secure that you're protecting privacy at a level that is deemed 
uh, acceptable by your citizens, but at the same time that your data integrity is assured, because if your data isn't, uh, if the integrity has been affected, then your data is completely useless, and ensuring that it's available for those who need to use it, that is a, a very difficult soft spot to, uh, to pinpoint. No, I, I agree. Um, that's, and, and I'll be honest, that's one of the things that keep me up at night. You know, trying to make sure that our systems are secure, our data is secure. Um, one, one of the things that we do here in the city of Hampton, uh, we, we do have a, um, a governance committee on, on, on how, we do how we do technology, how we do data. But still, you know, we, we have an open data policy where our citizens can come to us and, you know, review our information, you know, review crime data, things like that. But keeping that data secure, and, and I agree with, uh, I'm, I'm, forgive me if I mispronounce your name, but Dr. Mays, um, it, it, it's hard to really be secure and and he, he, he said you know you have to strike a balance between the confidentiality and integrity and the availability because you can tighten things so much that you as you said you can't utilize your data but you you, you have to strike that balance and and for us we have to have our our data open so uh, you know individuals can re review it uh, they look at it, we, like I said, we, we put up our crime data, uh, you know, when, when people come into our community, they want to, they want to, you know, know that they're going to be living in a, in a community that's safe. But for me, ensuring that we have security, it, it's, it's not a matter of if somebody's going to penetrate us, it's, it's, when, it's going, when it's going to happen. And, and um, you know, we just continue to put things in place, put security measures in place, put appliances in place that will help us. But it, it's an open question. How, how do we actually know that we're being secure when perpetrators are just as smart? And 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 you know they they you know when something new comes out, they're figuring out a way to to. Um, combat it and, and to see how they can penetrate. So uh, it, it is it, it is a thing for me that I, I do think about often is making sure that we are secure and hopefully we don't have any instances or incidents that we get compromised. So uh, I worry about that data, you know, and citizens information may be available it's all it's always uh, a concern. Well, I I agree with uh, everything being said. Uh, <clears throat> I just want to add uh, one more thing. It's kind of like uh, <clears throat> when it comes to the the practice uh, that is uh, performed at the cities or in in, in public uh, offices in general. The issue I think that is. Uh, for the for the security of the data, not necessarily is coming from outside. Sometimes it's coming from inside by somebody not really practicing 
the security uh, uh, things that they have to practice, and sometimes it comes from the from this from the upper level as well. Uh, I'm, I'm sure, like uh, some of you heard of what happened in Florida during the Super Bowl, when somebody attacked the water plant, uh, tried to poison the whole city. Uh, when I went through that uh, special uh, in that particular uh, incident, uh, there was so many fraud over there in the system. Uh, system was very updated. They did not practice uh, simple security practice, like in, in, in order to make it secure. The, they used very old operating systems. They used very uh, insecure. There's, there is no firewall. Uh, they used the same password for all the machines. So they, they these are like something basics. And they could have like been done and avoided such an incident. Uh, the other thing is like with all these uh, data that we collect, uh, uh, yes, it's very important to make sure that we, we, we secure them and we have access to them and we have, but without having good, good practice by the people who handle them, uh, every, every measure that we do is not going to work basically. So it's, that, that's one of the things I think it's like, it's a simple fix. It's not that expensive. It's just like probably that the, the the city needs to be careful with 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 their practice and how they, for example, the password. I see at the, the some organizations they require the user to change the password every three four months for the security of that person's email, for example. Uh, but I I couldn't believe that the city the entire machines they have they use the same password. So these type of things like kind of comes to the ignorance of the people. Uh, probably feeling like uh, maybe being careless. I'm sure it wasn't like in purpose, uh, but it was just kind of like the lack of knowledge and the, 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 the serious of this, seriousness of this issue. Thank you. So uh, speaking of the security um, and what it looks like in practice, what are some common anonymization practices and uh, Dr. Davis, can you start us off by answering that and whether or not truly anonymized data can still be useful? Can Are those two um, achievable um, goals? Sorry about that. There, there are a number of, of, of ways to and anonymization uh, of data. Um, one that we use quite often is is the uh, you know the data masking where we you know you hide a lot of the different like especially now for social security numbers they they hide the first five and, and then the last four are are um, you know shown but you know we we use that a lot. Um, the others are, you know, you, you can use a, a pseudo anonymization and, uh, you know, what that does, it replaces, you know, the actual data, say like a name, you can replace that with another name. Say if I have my, my name's Wayne Davis, I can replace it with something else. Um, and, uh, that, you know, preserve some accuracy and integrity. But like I said, there are many, many ways you can do this. Um, but there, there is a downside to it because if, if you do 
different methods of animization, then you 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 begin to lose your integrity of the data, and 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 um, it, it it doesn't help your 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 way of, of doing business. But um, you you have to find that balance. You have to be able to balance you know your your security of your information, uh, the best way to do it. Um, and, and there are risks, so you have to be able to accept those risks depending on, on which method you use. Here for us, mainly we use the, the data masking. Uh, that helps us in what we're trying to do and, and protecting individuals. Uh, so um, that, that uh, for us is, is how we do our business here in Hampton. Uh, Professor Amalog, uh, do you think you can give us your uh, thoughts on this? Sure. Uh, I agree with Dr. Davis about that. There's several different techniques to to basically hide the information. And some of them, they, they uh, again, like they swap probably the columns and they make you don't feel like this is the name. Like they put, the, for example, the street name instead of the person's name. They put the phone number instead of the zip code or whatever, like they just kind of like swab it. It's it's not, it's easier, it's not difficult to retrieve, but the issue with that is uh, it, it makes it hard for the city to uh, basically um, personalize the experience of their citizen. So if these information are masked, for example, or this data is masked, uh, we're gonna lose a lot of potential in terms of, for example, marketing, enhancing the experience for the citizen, so it's kind of like a trade-off between uh, making it secure and keeping the data secure and also utilizing the data. So that there's a fine line between how far can we go both sides. Uh, again, it's, it's, it's all about how, our, how much we are willing to offer the citizen. Uh, it's not an easy uh, definition that to say, okay, this is how much we're going to do because you always want to offer more and you always want to make the, the life of citizen more enjoyable. Uh, and not only enjoyable, it's also utilize your resources that improves utilizing the resources that we have. But at the same time, we have to be careful with how far we do want to be always like, uh, uh, like trying to play the game of catch up with the security, which is might be very costly and dangerous actually. So, um, Again, in my personal opinion, I think we need to uh, to try to secure data as much as we can and try to be careful with the data that we use uh, just to be to be in the safe side. Uh, because again, the, the, the fix might be very, very costly. If anything, such like uh, uh, somebody uh, uh, attack the, 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 the grid for the city or the, some part of the infrastructure, that might be very costly in terms of Money and in terms of uh, people's life too. So uh, the, the 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 thing I I believe it should be is kind of like we need to be conservative with the things that we use. Our goal is to secure the data as much as we can. Yeah, and and get, coming back to uh, the examples that Dr. Davis gave, 
And the, the problem with anonymizing data, is, as he uh, pointed out uh, very, uh, very well, is that if the more anonymization uh, the data goes through, the more its integrity has been affected. So obviously what you want from a privacy uh, uh, expert as myself, what we want is the data to be fully anonymous. So for example, I just want the data to say that there are so many cars on the road between Williamsburg and Norfolk at 5 p.m. on a Friday. But that data is not necessarily useful. What I want to know is where are these people coming from? Uh, how many people per car? But if I'm adding these pieces of information, well, the more information I add, the more my anonymous data is easier to reconstruct, especially when you're talking about algorithms that are going through all this data. So the more data uh, points, data elements that I add together, well, if I know that the person driving through uh, uh, Williamsburg to go to Norfolk was uh, somebody who comes from uh, Williamsburg and they were three in a car and oh, by the way, they had a bumper sticker that said this, well, now I can probably identify exactly who's in the car. So my data isn't really that anonymous anymore. And that's the problem with pseudonymization, which in theory is great, but in practice, uh, if I say, okay, let's everybody on this panel will use a pseudonym uh, and we say, okay, now we're just gonna try to see uh, uh, who uh, is the candidate or the individual that uh, is bald and has a beard, well, we all know what I'm talking about myself. Even if I say uh, that individual's name for the purposes uh, of this discussion is Captain Fantastic, why not? Let's give myself a fun name. So the, the pseudonyms are, are useful, but it's not a very good way, especially when you're talking about artificial intelligence and algorithms that are powerful enough to across all of this data to reconstruct a profile. And then talking about masking, the problem with masking is if it's done by only one body, it is a very useful and, and, and a good way of doing things. Problem is masking is being used by multiple co companies and government bodies, and it's being used differently. Um, my credit card, when I use it with Amazon, Amazon masks the last four digits. I think PayPal masks the first four di digits and my bank masks the four middle digits. So basically if somebody has access to those three accounts, even if they're masks, if I'm lazy enough, uh, 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 like Mr. Uh, Dr. Almalag uh, just said to use the same password for those three accounts, even though everybody's masking, you can find my credit card number using those three accounts. So there is no perfect way to ensure anonymity uh, again, that the best way is to uh, uh, decouple information and isolate pieces of information, but then they become very little use for what smart city planners are trying to do with that data. Thank you. I think this is a good time to step back and uh, bring ourselves back into uh, the effect of smart cities on sustainability. And let's consider, are smart cities even good for the environment? Um, I know there's a often a presumption that smart cities are greener, but um, I know some professionals in the field would fight back against this idea. And um, Professor Vermez, I know you've done some research on this topic, if you could start us off. Um 
it depends on how you, if you take the smart city itself in, uh, in isolation, right, in a, as a silo, the smart city, if you're using the data to predict, for example, and, and control traffic, then definitely CO2 emissions will go down and so on. The problem is that smart cities don't exist in a bubble. They exist as part of a general infrastructure and of a, 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 a state and a country and so on. And you need to, to feed those smart cities, you need a lot of data. And to analyze the data, you need computing power. And that computing, that computing power needs to uh, use electricity. So there was a, a few weeks ago, actually, uh, they were talking about a, a, a few of these algorithms being used to uh, predict movements. And tra just training one of these algorithms for one particular mission for smart cities was the equivalent of the carbon footprint of five automobiles for the lifespan of these automobiles. And so if, if taking care of all this, so for example, your goal is to say, well, I want to know exactly what's the best time to turn on and turn off uh, streetlights to save energy. Well, if you're going to be using thousands of kilobytes of, uh, of data to do this, and therefore a lot of energy to try to analyze when this is best, and you're using power that is coming from a coal-based power plant, well, then saving a couple of watts of, uh, of electricity per year will have cost you way more and generated a way uh, uh, larger carbon footprint. So you have to be very careful of uh, what this entails using this data. And then you have also just all of the technology that you're using, developing, right, Micro microchips, um, are not that easily recycled. So if you're, you have also to factor in, uh, into your equation, all of the technological uh, 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 products that are discarded after a couple of years because they're not up to date anymore. And so it can be a very green uh, system depending on how you're putting things forward, but you have to keep all of this into account. And the problem is this is, a, this is usually not uh, uh, put into the equation when we're talking about a smart city being a green city. You have to actually paint the whole picture and just not take the elements that you want. Uh, Professor Amalog, uh, do you have something that um, you can share for this question from a computer science perspective? Sure, I, I agree with Dr. Uh, Vermas. Uh, one of the issues is that uh, technology ages very quick and uh, it's just the waste, the hardware, what to do with it. <clears throat> That's the one of the, in my opinion, based on my experience, I think this is one of the uh, challenges that we have when it comes to having smart cities. Smart cities requires a lot of sensors, requires a lot of hardware being installed, uh, roadside units and uh, uh, will be installed in smart buildings and so on and so forth. Uh, they age and they have to be replaced. Uh, I'm not gonna add to, uh, I agree with Dr. Varmas about the, uh, processing power and the energy that needs to be uh, uh, that that will be consumed to process all this big data. As again, it's like it's kind of like they go parallel. The more sensors that we have, the more waste we're gonna get. The more data we're gonna collect, the more processing power we need to consume. So uh, at the end, it's just gonna be like the trade-offs. We need to find also the line that is where do we stop 
where where that I think it's it should be part of the calculation when it comes to uh, the investments and the return of the of the investments. I think it has to be also uh, included in the equation the impact on the environment. Uh, I think that's one of the things a lot of uh, developers or initiatives like when it comes to uh, coming up with the new ideas or new new technologies for smart cities. I think they. Uh, based on my experience, it's very rare to find somebody is putting that in the equation. Uh, They're brilliant, beautiful, nice, smart idea, makes life much easier. But the issue is that what is behind the scene that will probably impact our plant. Uh, I believe that should be part of uh, any decision making when it comes to uh, installing a new technology or uh, introducing a new uh, service in the smart city environments. And if I can carry on, uh, Professor Alma, like you, 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 you're pretty much making an argument. I think some of the legal literature has explored for a few years, which is a genuine environmental impact assessment. We do those if we want to build a new port, a new um, a major physical infrastructure. We have to do those. How are we impacting the coastline or particular vulnerable populations of birds and whatnot? And I think what you're suggesting is. Sure, let's keep doing them when we have a major physical infrastructure, but the digital space is just as capable of, of, of having a negative footprint. And we need to think about it in a very uh, conscious way as we come up with the next smart, quickest idea to improve the, the, the life of our sort of the constituents in, in our smart space. So I, I and I think I know that there are some students um, of our AI class that are taking part at least listening to this um, symposium. And this makes a perfect topic for a very good paper in thinking about what does an environmental impact assessment look like in the context of a smart city. Dr. Davis, I think you have more pragmatic examples to bring. What are your thoughts? Um, one thing we did uh, in, in looking at this. Uh, we 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 had a neighborhood that was uh, underserved, and uh, there was really not too much technology there. Um, uh, we we had a walking trail in a, in a specific neighborhood that had no light. So, w- what this was was an opportunity to look at how we could use smart technology to infuse that neighborhood and to provide them with opportunities to see how a a smart city would work. Um, We thought we we had a study. We we went into the neighborhood, we had a study, we talked to the citizens there. What we did, we, there, there was a, area where there was a football field, a a baseball field, had no lighting at all. The walking trail had no lighting. So what we did, we we brought in um, smart poles that were uh, driven by, not by electrical power, but they were, um, you, you, you could charge the batteries by the sun. So we so we brought that in there, uh, and we also added technology that in the lighting system that we had LED lights. But as you walk through the area, they would brighten. As you walk past, they they would dim, you know, conserving energy. 
And we also, uh, since there was no technology there, we also uh, in, in installed cameras in that area. Um, and we also put in um, charging capacities for, for families that were out there in the, in the neighborhood. So when we started the initial implementation of this, it was surprising because we had a lot of citizens come out and greet us and, and, and to thank us for taking an interest in their community. Because to them, it showed that we had an interest. It showed that we cared about them, um, especially by placing the cameras on, on, the, on the light poles. You know, that also showed a sense of protection for them because what we did, we tied that back to our, our police department so that they could see if, if there was any kind of malicious activity going on. But it, it was a community effort as well as a team effort. Uh, for us, it was not the idea to just go in and, and put this in and see what we can do with it. But we, we integrated with the community. We spoke with them. We got information. And we used that information to produce a portion because it was a pilot for us. Because if we, we thought that if we do it, we could use it in other areas of the other city. So by us doing that, the, the, the response now from citizens are, okay, when, when are you going to do that for us? But um, it, it was something that we utilized to, for, it was a start for us in our smart city applications. So we take that information that we gained from that and we develop a, a larger plan to, to implement into the larger city uh, area and uh, make sure that we have buy-in and that we have uh, capacity to do it because that did cost. And uh, you know we have to uh, look at how we, we fund those type of activities because anytime we do anything like that, it's going to cost. So those are some things that we did to look at how we can integrate a smart city application in an underserved area. And, and, and for them, it, it made their lives better. Thank you. Now, um, this discussion has been incredibly interesting and I wanna thank all of our panelists today. And I hate to do this, but now we're nearing the end of our time. so we have to begin closing off. So with our last five minutes, um, I'd like to ask each of you to share one last thought um, that you have about smart cities. And um, Dr. Davis, I know you just finished talking. Uh, could you start us off, please? Sure. For, for me, as the CIO of the city, uh, it to engage with my colleagues, the other directors in the city, to, to get that buy-in, to look at how we can make um, opportunities better for our citizens. So working with them, that's how we came up with the process of working with our economic development department 
looking at opportunities that we could use to infuse technology into underserved areas, uh, the costs associated with that, and then develop a plan to move to, to that opportunity. Um, th this is not something uh, that should be taken lightly because for us, we had the opportunity to share it and then the city uh, leadership was conducive to the change that we were presenting. So for, for me, uh, it's, it's communication, breaking down the silos, making sure that we're all on the same page. So as we move forward to build a smart city, we can utilize the data that we, we uh, receive to make better decisions that's going to help us in the future. Thank you. Professor Almolog, do you have any last uh, thoughts to share with us? Sure. Um... I would like to, so when it comes to smart cities, and they're probably going to be on more into the city uh, as authority themselves than uh, the people of this, uh, or citizen in the cities. Uh, we're all going through this kind of pandemic thing right now. And uh, unfortunately, we're using Zoom instead of being in person uh, to do this panel. Uh, I think with this pandemic that kind of like tested and put a lot of pressure in, in the city uh, resources. Uh, uh, I was reading an article and they were saying like uh, during the pandemic and when people spending more time at home, uh, the power consumption or the electricity consumption increased by 20%. Uh, that puts a lot of pressure in the grid for the city. Uh, also the bandwidth or the internet access. Uh, there was a lot of, uh, you will see in, at home is maybe a couple of people or maybe more than that, um, uh, video uh, conferencing at the same time. Uh, we also noticed that uh, there's some changes in the city. <clears throat> city relies on many different uh, resources and uh, one of them is the shopping centers and one of them also is the office places. And these two main uh, uh, parts of the city get affected uh, because of the pandemic. Uh, but luckily uh, cities that are uh, and I would say more digitalized than others, they survived. Uh, and we start to see the importance actually of having smart cities. Uh, people are gonna be doing more e-commerce uh, and online shopping than any time before. Uh, it's not like after uh, this pandemic is over, we're gonna go back again to where we used to. We, we saw the other side. So people are gonna stay where, where we're doing. Uh, a lot of uh, companies right now, they put, uh, uh, special packages uh, in the, for their employees uh, for making an office at home, because most likely they're gonna work from home. So this all puts in the infrastructure, which is part of the smart cities, which like the bandwidth, we need to get it that one. We probably need to focus on it more than what we probably thought we were doing. So uh, I just kind of like, I wanna connect the smart cities with the current situation that we live in. Uh, that's something that I, I feel like I, I, uh, I wish we had more time. We probably can discuss it all of us together, but hopefully in future panels, we can discuss something like that. Thank you. Definitely very pertinent with us hosting our symposium over a webinar. Um, uh, Professor Vermes, can you share your last thoughts with us? 
Yeah, I would say if I want to, to, to summarize things, uh, and this links directly to what I said at the very beginning, um, smart cities, since they're not necessarily defined, and if we're talking about, well, there's cities that use technology, we need to remember that technology is a means to an end and not an end in itself, right? Saying I want the best smart city uh, is basically saying I want the brightest new toy, uh, and it's not and the, the places where this is what has been tried failed miserably. Uh, an approach like the one uh, Dr. Davis proposed or, or presented rather is much more uh, rational and useful. And that is to say, okay, this is my problem. This is what I'm trying to address. Uh, these are the different possibilities, the different ways this can be addressed. Technology is one of them. And in this particular scenario, it is the best way forward. So let's adopt technology. But we have to be weary of this. Let's just put technology everywhere. Let's put cameras. Let's put sensors. Let's just buy all the last, the, the latest, latest gadgets. That's a, a that's basically basically a, a recipe for disaster and that's not the type of approach that you need to address. And that's also an approach that's very dangerous from a legal point of view because of privacy concerns, uh, but of security concerns as well. The more technology, useless technology you put in place, the more risks you generate for the data that you're collecting. What I'll try to do with my last few uh, comments is sort of tie in uh, the, the last thoughts of uh, the entire panel. Um, because I'm hearing sort of an overarching theme which appeared transpired in all our answers. And that is that these problems are complex and solutions are never going to come only from one discipline. So Dr. Davis, I want to reassure you that there is at least 46 people listening to this panel who come from mostly from a legal background, but who are really working hard to try to bridge the gap and speak with technologists. You know, some of my students are taking a cybersecurity class and today we had a professor for computer science charting some of the challenges of cybersecurity. So uh, William and Mary, in fact, Virginia through the Commonwealth Cyber Initiative is really trying to work hard to create the pipeline of cyber expert, where that just doesn't mean a coder, but it means a useful professional that can assist you and your team in thinking through what is the right technology like Professor Vermeis was saying for this specific problem. So perhaps I'll close with this sort of hopeful comment, the next generation is they're working in the wings. Just give them a couple of years and are all ready for, for employment. Thank you very much. Thank you all so much um, for your, taking the time to share with us your knowledge and your expertise. It was, pleasure, it was a pleasure having you all here today. And I think I can speak for everyone when I say we have learned a lot from this discussion, especially from the broad range of backgrounds that we have among our panelists here. So thank you to our attendees as well. And please stay on this link for a brief closing from our symposium editor, Melissa Mahan. Thank you all for joining us today at the Environmental Law and Policy Review Symposium, Sustainability in the City. A virtual round of applause to our panelists for their time and expertise in helping us to explore what urban sustainability means. We hope that what you have learned today has given you some insight into the kind of sustainability each of you would like to see in your own communities, as well as some ways to pursue that sustainability. If you would like to read our author's work, volume 45 of the Environmental Law and Policy Review will be available this summer. If you would like to hear these panels and discussions again, they will be available in a week on the Environmental Law and Policy Review website, 
at www.wmelpr.com. Thank you all and have a great evening. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sustainability in the City from the William & Mary Environmental Law and Policy Review. We hope you enjoyed the presentation. Please check out our other episodes, which include other author presentations, as well as the symposium panels. And please follow us on social media 